Before we get started with this episode, just a quick note that I will be appearing once again on the We Make Books podcast with Rekka and Kalen on January 5th, where I will be talking about trunking stories. Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Visnets. Today, it is my honor to welcome uh, a director at large of the science fiction and fantasy writers of America and an accomplished author of both fiction and interactive fiction, Phoebe Barton. Phoebe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, it's super fun to have friends who I know basically entirely through text on and actually see them moving around and hear their voices. Yeah, and especially in this sort of situation, it's, uh, really, it's really worthwhile to be able to do that because I have seen so few people over oh, yeah. the last most of this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for real. Uh, so, Phoebe, you're going to be reading to us from more things than are dreamt of. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that was one. It was one of my early stories that uh, I wrote fairly early on in my attempt to establish myself as a writer. But it was one of the ones that, for whatever reason, just didn't quite stick. Awesome. Well, I would uh, I'd love to hear more about that after the reading. So uh, I'm ready when you are. All right. So here we go. This is more things than are dreamt of. It was nearly 31 o'clock when Ash Thorne's latest challenge staggered out of the arrival shack. He was young, <laughs> his face haggard and sallow, and carried a limp interstellar development organization duffel bag that looked away as much as he did. Yevgeny York? He nodded to Ash's relief. It wouldn't be the first time some Earth bureaucrat had made her wait for a phantom. Welcome to Esperanza. Name's Ash Thorne. I'll be your guide until you acclimate. Guide? York blinked hard and rubbed his eyes as he gazed into the sky. That's impossible. You're a long way from Earth, Ash said. There's a lot you've got to learn. No, that. He dropped his bag and pointed to the horizon. Corazon, Esperanza's gas giant primary, sliced a broad swath across the night sky. Its silver rings glittered as brightly as the band of the Milky Way. Is that supposed to be a planet? It's not a silver lever, I can tell you that, Ash said. Come on, <laughs> it's seriously late. Let's... Do you think this is funny? Do you? Ash jumped at his yell, unexpected as a dagger-toothed roar on a forest trail, as he shouted at the sky. She let him roar until he ran out of words and crumpled on the grass. I know it's a hard adjustment, Ash said, kneeling next to him. Tomorrow, I can show you around a warship house if that's what you're looking for. A lot of folks say it helps them make sense of things. Make sense? He gave her a long, hard look of pity, and then let his face fall into his open palms. I don't know what you know, lady, but while I was waiting in there, I saw that planet rise. Planets like that just don't rise. <laughs> Ash sighed and stood up. The dusk thieves were whistling in the forest past the spaceport's edge, and soon the buzzflies would zero in on the smell of earth. Part of her wanted to leave him there, on the grass. Let him learn what Esperanza was like. Let him see how it treated one man alone. That one does, Ash said. 
You don't get it, do you? York said. It's... He laughed for a moment, sharp barks between gulps of air, and sighed. He wouldn't understand. It's just been a very long day. That much I understand. Ash offered her hand. Come on. I'll show you the way. Sunrise brought a gentle breeze to the streets of Los Doraznos. Cargo trikes whispered along the greenways while people strolled in ones and twos, and here and there light trucks rumbled in from the outposts and homesteads loaded down for market. She stopped for a quick tea before continuing on to the green majesty of Arrival's house, where she squirmed through corridors already starting to fill with fresh-offs until she found York's door. Up for a stroll? He looked less put together than he'd been the night before, bloodshot eyes half-hidden behind a chaos of hair. You had good timing showing up for a holiday. Good chance for you to get a grip on what we're all about. I don't... There's a lot I need to figure out, York said. He still had on the same rumpled spaceport clothes. Maybe mm. later. He moved to push the door shut. Ash leaned in and wedged herself inside the frame. Look, I know it sucks, but this is how it is, Ash said. You need to get to grips with it. If you just keep pining for Earth, the harder it'll be for you to come to reality. Reality, that's a good one. He rubbed his temple and made a chiding click of the tongue. All right, I guess you're not going to let me alone today, so fine. Give me a moment. Arrival's house was never as busy as it was the morning after a shuttle arrived, and it took nearly ten minutes for them to make their way through the crowds and out to the street. It was hardly the first such wave to break against Los Doraznos' shores, but in a few days, the tide would take most of them out again, a few always stayed, but with 4,000 residents, the city was far from crowded. So, York said, this holiday of yours. X day, she said. I guess you didn't have that in your part of the world. No, we didn't, York said, but I'm sure you're going to tell me all about it. Not much to tell, Ash said, except that it sounds a hell of a lot better than exile day. When they passed through the main gate of the festival grounds, it seemed like half of Los Doraznos had beaten them there. Off to one side, crews were putting up the stage and stacking wood around the effigy, and ahead there were teeming rows of vendors, artists, and craftspeople jockeying for the silver espers jingling in everyone's pockets. I'll cover you today if you want to pick up something, Ash said as they made their way down one of the wooden fabric avenues. Think of it as... York wasn't listening. He'd stopped in front of an unremarkable stall staffed by a mousy Japanese woman with an array of worn-out machine parts laid out in front of her. Ash wondered if any of the toothless gears and corroded fasteners had come from her own workshop. Ayano, is that you? Yev, Ayano said, though she didn't look up. Figured you'd be lucky enough to end up here. But we're all lucky here, aren't we? I thought you were dead, York said. Your circle. They said that you were gone for good. I'm here, aren't I? They said you were dead, York said. He laughed, harsh, grating, and hollow like a hundred nuts inside a spinning drum, and frowned <laughs> at the sky. Do you think this is funny? Do you, you psychotic bastards, or is this my punishment? Yevgeny, Ash said with calm firmness, settle down. We can help stop it. Just stop. Stop it, York shouted. When he faced her, it was like he was staring through her all the way back to Earth. I'm not stupid, you know. Did you really think I wouldn't figure it out? That I wouldn't see what's really going on? What's really going on? Don't be a fool. York scooped up a clump of dirt and shook it at her. You see this? None of this makes sense. I know what being dislocated feels like, Ash said. It took months after my last warp jump before I felt like me again. There are people who can help. Yeah, help rewrite me, maybe, York said. Unless that's all part of it. You just stand there and... <laughs> he swallowed his sentence in a pained wail, shuddered, and fell to the ground. Behind him, Ayano stroked the casing of a worn but well-maintained wilderness stunner. <laughs> About time he shut up, Ayano said. It's all yours. Thanks. Ash hefted York's limp body and dragged him off. 
next day would have to wait. <laughs> the Saudad Institute sat just outside Los Doraznos, atop a tonsured hill thick with needle pine. Before Esperanza had opened for settlement, it had been an environmental research station. Since then, it had grown into a sweeping fusion of the artificial and the natural, with vaulted wooden halls branching off to the north, east, and west from the old core. It reminded Ash of a church, and while some groups held services there, the Institute's first priority was still research, not of Esperanza, but humanity's reaction to it. She shuddered as she made her way along the trail to the top. The primeval forest pressed in from both sides, with only a few smooth-edged stubs and fallen branches where the groundskeepers pruned the trees back. She'd made the same walk herself time and again in her first months. How much progress could York have made in only two weeks? They said I can go, York said. He was sitting on a bench in one of the Institute's gardens, a backpack at his feet and a clearer view of Los Doraznos and a Tatakai Bay beyond. I heard, Ash said. They didn't say why you were coming. I was where you are once. She sat down beside him. I know it's tough. You think I can't handle it? I'm your guide, my responsibility. You don't want to get lost on the way back to town. Aren't we all lost here? York stood for a moment, gazing out over the bay to the horizon. Lost and forgotten. Might be we were just too good for Earth, Ash said. Thinking about it like that helps some. York gave her a pitying look, but said nothing. After a quiet moment, he breathed out deeply, picked up his bag, and nodded. She led him down to the path, and in a few minutes the Institute was gone, swallowed by the trees. Aside from a few footprints ground into the trail, the two of them were alone on a world of wilderness. It was almost intoxicating, the soft rustling of leaves in the breeze, and the cool sense of rich ground and flowers and tree bark that were so controlled on earth, even in the green belts. She understood mm. why so many people walked into the bush and never came back. It took her a few precious seconds to realize York had walked into the bush himself. Though she could hear him crunching through the undergrowth, the leaves had only bowed for him as he passed through, and she had to make her own path. After a few moments of picking through the trees, she found him in a small clearing where he kneeled by a fallen springwood tree overgrown with moss. Nothing like this back home, York said, stroking the log like a lover's thigh. You'd think nobody had ever come here before. Maybe nobody has, she said. Big world. I'm sure it is. York walked behind her and let one hand fall on her shoulders. She shivered, but said nothing. I just want you to know I'm sorry for all this. Zap! For an instant there was a jolt, then nothing. Awareness trickled back slowly, and though there was still the whistling of the songbirds and the forest smell, it was joined by numbness in her back and an iron taste in her mouth. She recognized her stunner's signature easily enough. Bastard, she grumbled. She'd lost only a few minutes enough time to disappear into the wilderness, and he'd bound her with some springwood branches to seal the deal. She flexed her wrists in and out to weaken the springwood, ignoring the way it bit deeper into her skin with every motion. She swallowed the pain and worked in silence, which let her hear the approach of a four-legged stalker. She went motionless and watched from the corner of her eye as a dagger-toothed tiger padded into the clearing. It had to be a juvenile. Most of its kind had already learned not to approach human settlements, but that might not make a difference. No successful carnivore let good meat go to waste. It approached her slowly, aware that it was out of its element. Its home was the plains, and hunting among the trees was never without risk. The Struth made sure of that. They were clever critters, bright enough to prepare a kill to draw a dagger-tooth into a flurry of their talons. The dagger-tooth drew forward, torn between caution and hunger. It was close now, close enough for her to hear its growl, close enough to smell its fur, close enough that it wouldn't leave of its own accord. Tokyo! It was a harsh, sharp imitation of a struth's call, the best she could manage while bound and flat on her stomach. Quaka! Tokyo! 
the dagger tooth froze. Ash didn't let up. After an instant of indecision, the predator spun and dashed away, crashing through the bush. Ash waited for five minutes after it had gone before she allowed herself to move again. <laughs> Go careful, the homesteader said. His calloused hands and the crags on his face mapped a life lived longer on Esperanza than Earth. That path's not easy ground, and the storm last night churned it up something fierce. Critters'll leave you alone well enough, at least. I've been here long enough that they're good and scared. Thanks again for your help, Ash said. She'd been poring over maps at Ranger House, trying to pin down spots York might have gone, when she heard a report of supply theft by a man matching his description. If you see anything else, call it in immediately. Don't have to tell me twice, the homesteader said. This planet doesn't do us any favors. Folks gotta stick together, mm. even if some of them have sticky fingers. <laughs> Aside from a narrow dirt path roofed over by leaning trees and intertwined branches, the forest beyond the homestead was dense and unyielding. Here and there the ground was still muddy and soft from the rains, and partial imprints of new shoes from earth leapt out at her. He'd made a stumbling dash into the wilderness, and it took more than a kilometer for his trail to settle into a calmer pattern. She continued ahead at a steady pace, alert for traps he might have set, but York had left only his footprints behind. The sun had sunk low in the west when the trees began to thin and the slopes of Mount Koyama revealed themselves. High above the forest, Ash could see the red beacon flash atop the transmission tower. You'd better be there, Ash muttered. The broadcast station commanded a fine view of the Itatakai Bay area, and beyond it was unbroken wilderness all the way to Natsushima. If York pushed mm -hmm. farther, unless he stumbled into a homestead or frontier camp, he'd be good as dead. Damn fool. The path ended at the mountain road, a narrow gravel route just wide enough for two light trucks to scrape by. She climbed in silence, the calm air resonant with songbird harmonies, until the road leveled out at the Mount Koyama communications facility. It wasn't much, just a long prefabricated hut nestled amid the antennas. She went to the door, found it ajar, and thumbed her stunner. Make this simple. It was York, sure enough, hoarse and exhausted. He hadn't been far ahead at all. Tell me the frequency. I don't know what you're talking about. The technician was a young woman who squeaked with tear. There are tons of frequencies. Don't push me, York said. I'm tired of you all pushing me around like I don't know anything because I just got here. You're the ones who don't know anything. I just want to know what's the goddamn frequency to get out. Ash mm -hmm. steeled herself and stepped inside, stunner at the ready. York had the technician in his grip her arms and legs tied with binds that looked a lot stronger than Springwood, and held a knife to her throat. His face shone with sweat, his wild hair was speckled with mud, and his eyes were those of a man who'd gone to the edge. Don't take this any further, York, she said. Give it up. It figures they'd send you here. He scowled at her and tightened his grip on the knife. She had a clear shot at him, but he only needed an instant. Turns out I didn't need your help to make sense of things. We can work this out. She was a mechanic, not a ranger. Her hand was shaking. What do you want? I want to wake up, York said. Don't you get it, Thorn? This moon is practically identical to Earth, which isn't tidally locked to that big gas giant in the sky, and I came here on a starship that went faster than light. Precursors? Terraforming? It's all bullshit. We're dreams. Without hmm. taking her eyes off York, she pinched her cheek. Seems real enough to me. Don't be a fool, Thorn. He clicked his tongue at her. Did you ever stop to think about it? How aliens terraformed a bunch of rocks from nothing just so people like us would have somewhere to go? Or that they were never there at all? Esperanza, Krasnaya, Funsang, Mirabilis, the biggest lies ever told. I just need to find the right frequency and I'll finally wake up. Maybe, she said. Maybe we're all computer simulations and the real universe is winding down to die. Doesn't make a lick of difference. Focus on what's in front of you. Focus on what you can change. Let her go. Let go, he repeated. There was a strange emptiness in his eyes. 
You're right, Thorn. Before she could question him further, there was a storm of motion. York hadn't cut the terrified technician's throat, but he did shove her with enough force to slam and dash, bowling them over while he dashed outside. The breath flew out of her lungs, and the stunner flew out of her grip and danced across the floor. Sorry, the technician moaned. Are you all right? I should be asking you that. The technician gulped and nodded while Ash cut her bonds. Call the rangers, get them here. It was all just so fast, the technician said. There was a knock on the door, and when I opened it, he must have stunned me, and then it was tied up, and he was going all like you saw. It's not your fault, Ash said. She retrieved her stunner and went to the door. Lock up until they get here. There was nowhere he could run. Some men might have cowered behind one of the relay dishes or charged into the wilderness, but she found Yevgeny York standing at the edge of a 20-meter cliff, peering over the edge with curious eyes. Don't worry about it, York said. As she moved closer, she could see he was balanced on the edge, and every slight motion he made sent pebbles skittering down. It's not your fault. They didn't expect you to have to deal with this. They didn't expect anyone to see the light. You don't have to do this, she said. That is real. There's no honor in ignorance, Thorn, York said. You may be the dream of a coward, a liar, a thief, but you did show me the way. He spread his arms wide and leaned forward. Esperanza took hold of him and pulled him close. Ash dashed to the cliff's edge, but seized only air. There was time enough for her to watch him soar. For a moment, the hillside was quiet. For a moment. And that's it. Whew. I was no lie on the edge of my seat the whole time of that reading. That was awesome, Phoebe. Thank you. So, I think more often than not on this show, the stories people bring on are you know, very terrestrial fantasy stories. And it's something I read a lot of science fiction. I have not written a lot of science fiction that isn't near future. And so it's really fun to hear other people bring on these far future, you know, I was getting shades of Cowboy Bebop in there and all this just great stuff there. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and it's very interesting to go back and see it because part of it is kind of like there's so much in there that is sort of a frozen representation of directions I'd been considering moving into, but eventually Mm -hmm. did not. Because the thing about so many of my stories is that they're set in a linked universe where Mm. things uh, like... There will be references between stories, like sometimes individuals or places or events to link them together. Mm-hmm. This was one of the, would have been one of the very early entries in that. But since I trunked it, I went in a lot of different directions. And so it is very, kind of like a time capsule of roads not taken. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, that's something I feel like a lot of people do that. I can only speak for myself that um, a lot of my early stuff was linked in that way. Um, in in a more, like, close-knit sort of sense that uh, a lot of my early stories were about a single character doing urban fantasy detective macho stuff and then I was like wait I'm not that's not not me (laughs) so you said that this was one of the uh like very early stories that you wrote when you were uh trying to make your way in science fiction and fantasy I'd love for you to talk a bit more about sort of how you navigated that because like finding your way as an early career person is really difficult Yeah, I totally hear that. And also, I would say it was even more difficult when I started because I made the decision to start 
going after this, like writing professionally, in 2007. So, oh yeah, social media was not nearly a thing. Mm-hmm. There were very there were comparatively few online uh, sort online magazines. The I had no awareness of any kind of community. So Mm -hmm. I was essentially working on this all on my own. So what I did was that I figured, all right, if uh, I'm going to do something, because what had happened was that in 2006 was the 2006 was the first and only time I participated in NaNoWriMo, but it Mm -hmm. did result in me producing a 50,000 word draft incomplete but i feel like that was what made it click to me that yes i am actually capable of this long form focused stuff mhm and so in 2007 what i did was i went to back of phoenix books which is a major science fiction fantasy bookstore here in Toronto and started Mm -hmm. buying Analog and Asimov's and reading them every month to get a sense of what modern short science fiction was. Because Mm -hmm. I had read some short stories at that time, but they were from slightly older anthologies and often those would be drawing from things written across multiple decades. Mm Mm-hmm. And I really needed to know what was going on then. And so it did take five years of uh, submissions and rejections. I did start my uh, my rejections folder, which is at that time was just a manila folder, was started mm-hmm. on August 7th, 2007. And the earliest rejection I can find is a physical letter from Asimov's. <sighs> From November 22nd, 2007, because that's, I feel like that's another weird, interesting thing about my career, because it does just barely intersect the whole switch from mailed submissions to electronic mm-hmm. submissions. Because my first, when I finally did sell to Analog, it was electronic, but... Mm-hmm. My early submissions were of printing this manuscript out on my roommate's uh, printer, getting an uh-huh. international reply coupon from the post office and putting it in the mail and waiting however long for it to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that echoes my own experiences. Uh, I started writing to submit and try to get sales in... 2006 so i was doing that same dance of uh you know not knowing anybody and uh having to mail my submissions out to fnsf and to uh, weird tales and wait and wait and wait and then get that disappointing tiny envelope with like not even a half sheet rejection slip in it at the time so yeah, I, I totally, I totally get that, um, yeah. and it's you know, I'm really grateful that we have electronic submissions now. So much so, <laughs> but this story actually owes a lot to actually making a sale because I did manage to sell something to Analog in June 2012, which was my very first pro sale. Mm-hmm. And the earliest draft of this story is from July 2012, and it was set in a, set on the same world in sort of the, a similar situation as to that, sort of building on that one, mm-hmm. which is one reason why it is so different than things eventually ended up, because there were a lot of early decisions that I decided against. For example, like the whole idea of this this uh, this planet Esperanza being where like political dissidents and exiles are transported, that is something mm-hmm. that I ended up giving up. But 
it is a theme that is radically through the story in terms of how it affects it. But I do also, as I was reading through it, I could also very clearly see how much I absolutely would not write a story like this now. Because Mm -hmm. I was seeing so much of the echoes of... 19th century adventure fiction is science fiction. Mm-hmm. And that that is something I wasn't really aware of in 2012, but I like to think I have developed as a writer over the last eight years. And there are a mm-hmm. lot of situations where I would be a lot more careful, approach things from an entirely different trajectory. And that's one reason why this story has been trunked because it's just, it's one of those stories where I don't think it's, uh, I think it's better off trunked, especially mm-hmm. considering that the whole nature of it. Yeah, and that's something, you know, I think one of the things that I really like about this this show, the format of this show for me and for, um, like, the conversations that I have with guests is being able to sort of see that uh that evolution of like awareness of you know where is science fiction fantasy going and where is uh like the the awareness of how our art is political and that you know the the by drawing on the stories from the past that were you know political by the nature of being steeped in, you know, 20th century heteronormative white colonialism. Like, they may not have been explicitly saying political things, but they were absolutely politically influenced. And, you know, in the year of our Lord 2020, we are absolutely saying things about those same issues from the other side, where we're saying, like, Look, we reject, you know, cis heteronormative white colonialism and all these things. So yeah, that's I think it's really interesting to see like for ourselves to see our growing awareness of those issues. Yeah, and it did just make me think that it's why is I haven't revisited that setting in a while because there are at least two stories that I've written set on Esperanza. Mm-hmm. The first one was the very my very first prose story, uh, a paragon on sorry, the paragon of animals. And one of the things I've always thought about is would we recognize a sapient species if we met one? Because there is a whole thing of personally I believe that given the evidence we have, it is Mm -hmm. plausible that the octopus is sapient. But how could we, how could we recognize that? Because they are essentially aliens. We don't have any sort Mm -hmm. of common basis of comparison. And what I did in that story was that that is where I introduced the Struth, which are basically the descendants of transplanted Moas, that became sapient Mm. because that way I could also make a lot of in jokes and references to chocobos. (laughs) Nice. Yes. There is a, that is the reason that the protagonist of that story is named Warkworth. (laughs) But, and, but I did, the more I thought about it, the more I was, uncomfortable about the prospect of writing more stories that are tangling with the direct idea of colonialism in this way and unless I'm able to do them correctly Mm -hmm. and the second time I went there I did that by making the antagonist John W. Campbell (laughs) fantastic that's awesome. So I wanted to uh, give you a chance to talk about 
your game that just came out yesterday, The Luminous Underground. And uh, first, if you can just tell us a little bit about it. All right, excellent. And yeah, I like, super hope that it, is, that it was yesterday, December 17th, because yeah. we're recording this a lot earlier than December, and hopefully nothing will have changed. But yeah, yes, the, the this is a under- pre-election day recording date, so you know anything can happen at this point. So, Luminous Underground is a project that has been consuming me for the last two years, but it is an interactive novel that is a contemporary, secondary world municipal fantasy, heavily influenced by Ghostbusters. Ooh, I'm very into that. I am I am extremely into every piece of that concept. Um so as somebody who has written both you know sort of traditional linear fiction and interactive fiction I'm really interested for from your perspective like what are some of the differences and what are some of the things that drew you to interactive fiction? Well the drawing was a lot of it was that I wanted to find new ways to stretch myself because mm. at the time in 2018, I felt like I was spinning my wheels a bit because in early 2018, I was uh, in not a great situation. I had spent six months in 2017, early 2018, writing a novel that ended up not being nearly ready at all. Mm-hmm. It had also left me with a huge lack of short stories to send out. So there is, uh, even now I can look back and see, like, there is this gap in my bibliography because of the mm-hmm. stories I didn't write while I was writing that. But it was just wanting to challenge myself and explore the possibilities of a new medium. And mm-hmm. doing it was super educational because... It makes you think through a lot of things when you're dealing with situations where you need to have multiple paths through, where there is never just the one. And Mm -hmm. also, like, there is never even just a binary choice because I'm working with Choice of Games on this. They're the the publisher for this. Mm -hmm. And part of their house rules is that Every choice must have at least three options. So it's just constantly reinforcing the thing of there are multiple ways to solve problems. And I feel like that's something science fiction is something that is worth learning for science fiction. Or at least Mm -hmm. reinforcing. Because now things are so much better but there's still the the rotten foundation that it was built on where there is only one solution and so many times that solution is genocide mhm yeah yeah uh i i did not know i i have a number of other friends who have worked with choice of games in various capacities. I didn't know that part of their house rules that they are, you know, rejecting the binary. And I really like that as somebody who is not a fan of binary choices in general. Yeah. And it does, it's worthwhile as an author because it makes me put more thought into, okay, how could how could this potentially be resolved? But in even bef- beyond that, there's, okay, how could this potentially be resolved? And how could each of these potentials go right and go wrong? Mm-hmm. Which is one reason why choices like that can take ages to write. Like sometimes there have been days where it took an entire day to write a single choice. Mm-hmm. And it's something that something that a player will only ever see one-sixth of on a specific playthrough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, are there things that you would recommend for uh, people who are interested in getting into interactive fiction as an author? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, I would definitely recommend Choice of Games because they are always looking for new authors. They do have uh, instructions on their mm-hmm. website for how you can pitch games to game concepts to them. But beyond that, there are things such as Twine. I, I mm-hmm. am planning on learning Twine in the very near future so mm-hmm. that I can continue to write interactive fiction in addition to in addition to my other projects because there is a nice feeling about like working on a smaller project because mm-hmm. the thing about the luminous underground is it it is over 600,000 words long. Yeah, that is many words. That that is uh, a serious undertaking. Yes, to write and something that big. And but it does make me feel like I will never be intimidated or daunted by a novel now. Because mm-hmm. in a novel you do not have to keep track of stats. You do not uh-huh. have to provide the player with a choice every 400 words or so. You mm-hmm. do not have to account for the success and failure of everything. So linearity can make things a lot simpler. But what I feel is important is like for the reader to get that linearity, but for the author to have those potentials in mind, and then just to be able to go with whatever is the most interesting at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's super cool to, like... I've, I've played with Twine a little bit years and years ago, and sort of, like, you know, I, I'm always interested in in exploring, like, different mediums and different, like, ways of uh, playing around with things and never finished a project partly because I didn't have like I think the the project I got the farthest with I was still just trying to adapt a linear story but I think that thinking about it in that way could really open up things you know for me personally like open things up in my writing um, but I think that's a really great thing to be able to think about yeah and Also, in terms of adaptation, I feel like this sort of narrative is strongest when you're working to its strengths. And when you are building a story that could only really be told in that way interactively, because if The Luminous Underground was a novel instead Mm -hmm. of interactive fiction, so much of it would be different, because part of... Part of the thing with this interactive fiction is that you have a specific player character, and it's, it's mm-hmm. all in second person, and that narrative focus stays with you 100% of the time, so there are, there are things the author can and can't do, like can and cannot establish for the player character, because there needs to be a lot of room left for players to project themselves or their own or their own ideas onto the player character so Mm -hmm. in that case they're a lot more of a cipher to the extent that even the even the the official art for the game as you can Mm -hmm. see on for example the steam page has a generic player character included in it who is not actually anyone whereas if uh if it was a novel the protagonist would be someone else entirely because Mm -hmm. in that case it would be more like who's a more interesting protagonist who has a more interesting arc and so on and so forth because there are a lot more things to think about in terms of delivering a satisfying narrative arc when Mm -hmm. there when it's so much of almost like a sine wave of uh, possibilities Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's so cool to think about uh all of that. And I I'm you know, I'm here sitting in late October of twenty twenty, I'm thinking about, oh well I'm gonna be doing NaNoWriMo starting in a little over a week and you know, I have some basic stuff planned out, but like 
so much of it is just I'm going to be making words every single day and getting back in that practice. And then it's really going to come down to the edits to figure out that stuff. So having having this conversation for me is really exciting because it means, you know, I have the benefit of pre-NaNoWriMo of thinking like, okay, here is how I can consider what actually makes a satisfying long-form narrative. Yeah, because it's, it reminds me of things that uh, I've seen said about comics. Because like rather than adapting prose to comics, comics are mm-hmm. their own thing and should be considered as their own thing. And stories told in that medium should play to their strengths. And it's the same with interactive fiction. But I would say the most critical thing about interactive fiction is to go into it with an outline. Because I would mm-hmm. say, like, I know this will be different for everyone, but I would say it is, in my experience, it is vastly more necessary to have an outline in interactive fiction than in anything else. Mm-hmm. Even vague, because Choice of Games does require an outline as part of the pitching process. Mm-hmm. They will not give you a contract unless they accept an outline for the game. Mm-hmm. The contract, the outline for mine diverged significantly in the specifics, but there was that still that general sense that held together. And so mm-hmm. part of the, I feel like one of the things that it taught me was knowing where you're going generally mm-hmm. like you're going to the you want to go to a mountain but there's a forest in the way you don't know what ex- what exact path you're going to take through the forest but you know the direction that you need to head in and you know mm-hmm. there are potentially clearings that you want to you that you want to visit along the way to get your bearings and mm-hmm. That is how this ended up for me, because also a project like this is much too big to be held in my head. So mm-hmm. much of the so much of the beta testing involved just, okay, beta testers, keep your eyes out for plot lines that got dropped, because mm-hmm. there was an entire character that more or less disappeared from direct appearances in the narrative after Mm. a certain point that point being when i went to clarion west and was was, uh, not working on the game for a period of three months that would do it yeah that would definitely make a, a difference in terms of like just dropping a character so at this point in the show uh this weird blue police box just showed up behind me i wondered if we could take a step inside this time machine and go back and see if there are any words of wisdom that you could offer yourself as a brand new writer, if you could go back and and talk to yourself then. Well, it's it's not necessarily entirely words of wisdom, almost words of adaptation. Because, Mm -hmm. like, as a new writer, one of the things I would definitely want to say is, like, speaking as a trans woman, like... Hey, guess what? You're a girl. Because (laughs) it's something I would have liked to know a lot earlier, even though, Mm -hmm. like, my very earliest rejection that, uh, that I mentioned earlier did have those kind of trans feels, even though at the time I didn't recognize them or have the vocabulary to express them. Mm hmm. That makes sense. But beyond that, the most critical part is just find your community, find your people. Because mm-hmm. before I found before I found communities online, this mm-hmm. is that is a the huge reason why I went to conventions, like local conventions. I started going to Worldcon in uh, in earnest in twenty twelve and mm-hmm. It was by attending those that I met people I would not have met otherwise and just started Mm -hmm. building those connections and meeting people who 
had a better idea of what they were doing and just having an opportunity to learn. Mm hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, for for my path, finding community is uh, finding writing communities is really what made the difference between like giving up or writing in a vacuum and like actually being able to turn out things that I can look back on and not cringe at. Phoebe, I really appreciate your coming on the show. It's been super awesome. Uh, before we wrap up, where can our listeners find you elsewhere online? And where can our listeners go and find the Luminous Underground? Right. You can find me online at uh, com. I'm on Twitter at a Phoebe Barton and the luminous underground is available as of December 17th from the choice of games website directly from steam, Google play and the Apple app store. Fantastic. And potentially even more. Those are the ones that I remember off the top of my head. Excellent. Well, listeners, Go and find The Luminous Underground wherever you play interactive fiction. Go and find Phoebe online, uh, where you'll find her tweeting about giant ladies in upcoming games. I'm very excited for your giant queer ladies game that is somewhere in the future. And it's become Phoebe, my brand. thank you so much. <laughs> it's a good brand. It is a good, good brand. Right, but thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at HBBisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>